0: 12. Rube, having come in response to an invitation from the nobleman, Hawkins, having finished his business, waited until Goldsmith came out, as he had a curiosity to know why the Earl had sent for him. Well, said Hawkins, what did he say to you? His Lordship told me that he had read The Traveler, and that he was pleased with it, and that inasmuch as he was soon to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and knowing I was an Irishman, asked what he could do for me and what did you tell him? inquired the eager Hawkins, why, there was nothing for me to say, but that I was glad he liked my poem, and that I had a brother in Ireland, a clergyman, who stood in need of help, enough, cried Hawkins, and left him, to Hawkins himself are we indebted for the incident, and after relating it Hawkins adds, and thus did this idiot in the affairs of the world trifle with his fortunes, let him who wishes preach a sermon on this story, but there you have it, a brother in Ireland who needs help, the brother in London, the brother in America, the brother in Ireland who needs help, all men were his brothers, and those who needed help were first in his mind, dear little Dr. Goldsmith, you were not a hustler, but when I get to the scary world, I'll surely hunt you up, William Shakespeare is a melancholy of mine own, compounded of many simples, extracted from many objects, and indeed the sundry contemplation of my travels, in which my often rumination wraps me in a most humorous sadness. As you like it I have on several occasions been to the Shakespeare country, approaching it from different directions. But each time I am set down at Lemington. perhaps this is by some act of Parliament I really do not know, anyway. I have ceased to kick against the pricks and now meekly accept my fate. Lemington seems largely under subjection to that triumvirate of despots the butler the coachman and the gardener, you hear the jingle of keys, the flick of the whip and the rattle of the lawnmower, and a cold, secret fear takes possession of you a sort of half-frenzied impulse to flee, before smug modernity takes you captive and whisks you off to play tiddly dee links or to dance the racket, but the tram is at the door the outside fare is a penny, inside it's two, and we are soon safe, for we have reached the point where the lean and the avon meet, Warwick is of our while for here we see scenes such as Shakespeare saw, and our delight is in the things that his eyes beheld, at the foot of Mill Street are the ruins of the old Gothic Bridge that leads off to Banbury, oft have I ridden to Banbury cross on my mother's foot, and when I saw that sign and pointing finger I felt like leaving all and flying thence, just beyond the bridge, settled snugly in a forest of waving branches, we see storied old Warwick Castle, with Caesar's tower lifting itself from the mass of green, all about our quaint old houses and shops, with red-tiled roofs, and little windows, with diamond panes, hung on hinges, where maidens fair have looked down on brave men in coats of mail, these narrow, stony streets have run with the clang and echo of hurrying hoops, the tramp of royalist and parliamentarian, horse and foot, drum and banner, the stir of princely visits, of mail coach, market, assize and kinley court, cold brand, armed with giant club, Guy. Richard Neville, kinmaker, and his barbaric train, all trod these streets, watered their horses in this river, camped on yonder bank, or huddled in this castle yard, and again they came back when Will Shakespeare, a youth from Stratford, eight miles away, came here and waved his magic wand. Warwick Castle is probably in better condition now than it was in the 16th century, but practically it is the same. It is the only castle in England where the portcullis is lowered at ten o'clock every night and raised in the morning if the coast happens to be clear to tap of drum. It costs a shilling to visit the castle. A fine old soldier in spotless uniform, with waxed white mustache and dangling sword, convicts the visitors. He imparts full two shillings worth of facts as we go, all with a fierce roll of oars, as becomes a man of war. The long line of battlements. The massive buttresses. The angular entrance cut through solid rock, crooked, abrupt, with places where fighting men can lie in ambush, all is as Shakespeare knew it. There are the cedars of Lebanon, brought by crusaders from the east, and the screaming peacocks in the paved courtway, and in the great hall are to be seen the sword and accoutrements of the fabled guy, the mace of the kinmaker, the helmet of Cromwell, and the armor of Lord Brooke, killed at Litchfield, and that Shakespeare saw these things there is no doubt but he saw them as a countryman who came on certain fate days, and stared with open mouth, we know this, because he has covered all with the glamour of his rich, boyish imagination that failed to perceive the cruel mockery of such selfish pageantry, had his view been from the inside he would not have made his kings noble nor his princes generous, for the stress of strife would have stilled his laughter, and from his brain the dazzling pictures would have fled, yet his fancy served us better than the facts. Shakespeare shows us many castles, but they are always different views of Warwick or Kenilworth. When he pictures Macbeth's castle he has Warwick in his inward eye, this castle hath a pleasant seat, the air nimbly and sweetly recommends itself unto our gentle senses. This guest of summer, the temple-haunting Marlet, does approve, by his love Nancy Henry, that the heaven's breath smells wooingly here, no Juddy, freeze, buttress, nor coin of vantage, But this bird hath made his pendant bed, and procreant cradle, where they most breed and haunt, I have observed, the air is delicate, five miles from Warwick 10, if you believe the cab drivers are the ruins of Kenilworth Castle, in 1575, when Shakespeare was eleven years of age, Queen Elizabeth came to Kenilworth, whether her ticket was by way of Leamington I do not know, but she remained from July 9 to July 27 and there were great doings most every day, to which the yeomanry were often invited. John Shakespeare was a worthy citizen of Warwickshire, and it is very probable that he received an invitation, and that he drove over with Mary Arden, his wife, sitting on the front seat holding the baby, and all the other seven children sitting on the straw behind, and we may be sure that the eldest boy in that brood never forgot the day, in fact. In, Midsummer Night's Dream, he has called on his memory for certain features of the show. Elizabeth was forty-one years old then, but apparently very attractive and glib of tongue. No doubt Camelworth was stupendous in its magnificence, and it will pay you to take down from its shelf Sir Walter's novel and read about it. But today it is all a crumbling heap, Ivy. Rooks and Daws hold the place in fee, each pushing hard for sole possession. It is eight miles from Warwick to Stratford by the direct road, but ten by the river. I have walked both routes and consider the latter the shorter. Two miles down the river is Barfort, and a mile farther is Wasperdon, with its quaint old stone church. It is a good place to rest, for nothing is so soothing as a cool church where the dim light streams through colored windows, and out of sight somewhere an organ softly plays. Soon after leaving the church a rustic swain hailed me and asked for a match the Pike and the virginia wig they mean amity the world over, if I had questions to ask, now was the time, so I asked, and Rustic was informed me that Hampton Lucy was only a mile beyond and that Shakespeare never stole here at all, so I hope we shall hear no more of that libelous accusation, but did Shakespeare run away, I demanded, ah they coerce he did, sir, most all good men are they run away sometime. and come to think of it Rustic was his right, Most great men have at some time departed hastily without leaving orders where to forward their mail. Indeed, it seems necessary that a man should have run away, at least once, in order afterward to attain eminence. Moses, Lot, Tarquin, Pericles, Demosthenes, Saint Paul, Shakespeare, Rousseau, Voltaire, Goldsmith, Hugo but the list is too long to give. But just suppose that Shakespeare had not run away. And to whom do we owe it that he did leave Justice shallow or Anne Hathaway, or both? I should say to Anne first and his honor second. I think if Shakespeare could write an article for the ladies' home journal, on women who have helped me, and tell the whole truth as no man ever will in print, he would put Anne Hathaway first. He signed a bond when 18 years old agreeing to marry her, she was 26. No record is found of the marriage, but we should think of her gratefully for no doubt it was she who started the lad off for London, that's the way I expressed it to my newfound friend, and he agreed with me, so we shook hands and parted, charlcote is as fair as a dream of paradise, the winding avon, full to its banks, strays lazily through rich fields and across green meadows, past the bright red brick pile of charlcote mansion, the river bank is lined with rushes, and in one place I saw the prongs of antlers shaking the elders, I sent a shrill whistle and a stick that way, and out ran for fine deer that loped gracefully across the turf. The sight brought my poultry instincts to the surface, but I bottled them, and trudged on until I came to the little church that stands at the entrance to the park. All mansions, castles and prisons in England have chapels or churches attached, and this is well, for in the good old days it seemed wise to keep in close communication with the other world, for often, on short notice. The proud scion of royalty was compelled hastily to pack a ghostly valise and his hence with his battered soul, or if he did not go himself he compelled others to do so. And who but a brute would kill a man without benefit of the clergy? So each estate hired its priests by the year, just as men with a taste for litigation hold attorneys in constant retainer. In Charleco Church is a memorial to Sir Thomas Lucy, and there is a glowing epitaph that quite upsets any of those taunting and defaming allusions in The Merry Wives. At the foot of the monument is a line to the effect that the inscription thereon was written by the only one in possession of the facts. Sir Thomas himself. Several epitaphs in the churchyard are worthy of space in your commonplace book. But the lines on the slab to John Gibbs and wife struck me as having the true ring. Farewell. Proud. vague, False. Treacherous world. We have seen enough of thee. We value not what thou canst say of we. When the charlcote mansion was built, there was a housewarming, and good Queen Bess who was not so awful good came in great state, so we see that she had various calling acquaintances in these parts, but we have no proof that she ever knew that any such person as W. Shakespeare lived. However, she came to charlcote and dined on venison, and what a pity it is that she and Shakespeare did not meet in London afterward and talk it over. Some hasty individual has put forth the statement to the effect that poets can only be bred in a mountainous country, where they could lift up their eyes to the hills, rock and ravine, beeling crag, singing cascade, and the heights where the lightning plays and the mists hover are certainly good timber for poetry after you have caught your poet but nature eludes all formula. Again, it is the human interest that adds vitality to art they reckon ill to leave man out. Drayton before Shakespeare's time called Warwick, the heart of England, and the heart of England it is today rich, luxuriant, slow, the great colonies of rabbits that I saw at Charlcote seem too fat to frolic, save more than to play a trick or two on the hounds that blinked in the Sunday down towards Stratford there are flat islands covered with sedge, long rows of weeping willows, low hazel, hawthorn, and places where, green grow the rushes, oh, then, if the farmer leaves a spot until the dog rose preempts the place and showers its petals on the vagrant wines. Metasweet. Forget-me-nots and wild geraniums nettle themselves below the boughs of the sturdy ewes. The first glimpse we get of Stratford is the Spire of Holy Trinity. Then comes the tower of the new Memorial Theater. Which, by the way, is exactly like the City Hall at Dead Horse, Colorado. Stratford is just another village of Niagara Falls. The same shops. The same guides. The same Hackman all are there, save poor Low, with his beadwork and sassafras, in fact, a cabbie just outside of New Place offered to take me to the Wordle and the Canada side for a dollar, at least, this is what I thought he said, of course, it is barely possible that I was daydreaming, but I think the facts are that it was he who dozed, and waking suddenly as I passed gave me the wrong cue, there is a Macbeth livery stable, a Falstaff bakery. And all the shops and stores keep fellow this and Hamlet that. I saw briarwood pipes with Shakespeare's face carved on the bowl. All for one and six, feather fans with advice to the players printed across the folds, the seven ages on handkerchiefs, and souvenir spoons galore. All warranted gorms best. The visitor at the birthplace is given a cheerful little lecture on the various relics and curiosities as they are shown. The young ladies who perform this office are clever women with pleasant voices and babe starched, white aprons. I was at Stratford four days and went just four times to the old curiosity shop. Each day the same bright British damsel conducted me through, and told her tale. But it was always with animation, and a certain sweet satisfaction in her mission and starched apron that was very charming. No man can tell the same story over and over without soon reaching a point where he betrays his weariness, and then he flavors the whole with a dash of contempt, but a good woman, heaven bless her, is ever eager to please, each time when we came to that document certified to buy her, Judith x Shakespeare, Mark I was told that it was very probable that Judith could write, but that she affixed her name thus in marriage Jest, John Shakespeare could not write, we have no reason to suppose that Anne Hathaway could, and this little explanation about the daughter is so very good that it deserves to rank with that other pleasant subterfuge, The Age of Miracles is past, or that bit of jolly claptrap concerning the sacred baboons that are seen about certain temples in India, they can talk, explain the priests, but being wise they never do. Judith married Thomas Quiney. The only letter addressed to Shakespeare that can be found is one from the happy father of Thomas, Mr. Richard Quiney, wherein he asks for a loan of thirty pounds. Whether he was accommodated we cannot say, and if he was, did he pay it back? is a question that has caused much hot debate, but it is worthy of note that, although considerable doubt as to authenticity has smooched the other Shakespearean relics, yet the fact of the poet having been struck for a loan by Richard Quiney stands out in a solemn way as the one undisputed thing in the master's career. Little did Mr. Quiney think, when he wrote that leper, that he was writing for the ages, philanthropists have won all by giving money, but who save Quiney has reaped immortality by asking for it. The inscription over Shakespeare's grave is an offer of reward if you do, and a threat of punishment if you don't. All in choice dotherel. Why did he not learn at the feet of Sir Thomas Lucy and write his own epitaph? But I rather guess I know why his grave was not marked with his name. He was a play actor, and the church people would have been outraged at the thought of burying a strolling player in that sacred chancel. But his son-in-law, Dr. John Hall, honored the great man and was bound he should have a word the resting place, so at midnight, with the help of a few trusted friends, he dug the grave and lowered the dust of England's greatest son, then they hastily replaced the stones, and over the grave they placed the slab that they had brought, good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to did the dust enclosed here, blessed be the man who spares these stones, and cursed be he who moves my bones, a threat from a ghost, God. Uh, No one dare molest that grave besides they didn't know who was buried there neither are we quite sure. Long years after the interment, someone set a bust of the poet, and a tablet, on the wall over against the grave, under certain circumstances, if occasion demands, I might muster a sublime conceit, but considering the fact that 10,000 Americans visit Stratford every year, and all write descriptions of the place, I dare not in the face of Baedeker do it, further than that. In every library there are Washington Irving, Hawthorne, and William Winters' three lacrimal but charming volumes, and I am glad to remember that the Columbus who discovered Stratford and gave it to the people was an American, I am proud to think that Americans have written so charmingly of Shakespeare, I am proud to know that at Stratford no man besides the master is as honored as Irving, and while I cannot restrain a blush for our English cousins, I am proud that over half the visitors at the birthplace place are Americans. And prouder still am I to remember that they all write letters to the newspapers at home about Stratford on Avon. In England poets are relegated to a corner. The earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the men who can kill. On this rock have the English state and church been built. As the tourist approaches the city of London for the first time, there are four monuments that probably will attract his attention. They lift themselves out of the fog and smoke and soot and seem to struggle toward the blue. One of these monuments is to commemorate a calamity the conflagration of 1666 and the others are in honor of deeds of war. The finest memorial in St. Paul's is to a certain eminent Irishman, Arthur Wellesley. The mines and quarries of earth have been called on for their richest contributions, and talent and skill have given their all to produce this enduring work of beauty, that tells posterity of the mighty acts of this mighty man. The rare richness and lavish beauty of the Wellington Mausoleum are only surpassed by a certain tomb in France. As an exploiter, the Corsican overdid the thing a bit so the world arose and put him down, but safely dead. His shade can boast a grave so sumptuous that Englishmen in Paris refuse to look upon it. But England need not be ashamed. Her land is spiked with glistening monuments to greatness gone, and on these monuments one often gets the epitomized life of the man whose dust lies below on the carved marble to Lord Cornwallis I read that, he defeated the Americans with great slaughter, and so, wherever in England I see a beautiful monument, I know that probably the inscription will tell how, he defeated, somebody, and one grows to the belief that, while woman's glory is her hair, man's glory is to defeat someone, and if he can, defeat with great slaughter, his monument is twice as high as if he had only visited on his brother man a plane and doing, in truth, I am told by a friend who has a bias for statistics, that all monuments above 50 feet high in England are to the honor of men who have defeated other men with great slaughter. The only exceptions to this rule are the Albert Memorial which is a tribute of wifely affection rather than a public testimonial. So therefore need not be considered here and a monument to a worthy brewer who died and left 300,000 pounds to charity. I mentioned this fact to my friend. But he unhorsed me by declaring that modesty forbade carving truth on monuments. Yet it was a fact that the brewer, too, had brought defeat to vast numbers and had, like Saul, slaughtered his thousands. When I visited the site of the Globe Theater and found there on a brewery, whose shares are warranted to make the owner rich beyond the dream of avarice, I was depressed. In my boyhood I had supposed that if ever I should reach this spot where Shakespeare's plays were first produced, I should see a beautiful park and a splendid monument, while some white-haired old patriarch would greet me, and give a little lecture to the assembled pilgrims on the great man whose footsteps had made sacred the soil beneath our feet. But there is no park, and no monument, and no white-haired old poet to give you welcome only a brewery. I, Monday but ain't you tea a big un, protested an Englishman who heard my murmurs. Yes, yes, I must be truthful it is a big brewery and there are four big bulldogs in the courtyard, and there are big vets, and big workmen in big aprons, and each of these workmen is allowed to drink six quarts of beer each day, without charge, which proves that kindliness is not dead, then there are big horses that draw the big wagons, and on the corner there is a big taproom where the thirsty are served with big glasses, the founder of this brewery became rich, and if my statistical friend is right, the owners of these mighty vets have defeated mankind with great slaughter. We have seen that, although Napoleon, the defeated, has a more gorgeous tune than Wellington, who defeated him. Yet there is consolation in the thought that although England has no monument to Shakespeare he now has the freedom of Elysium, while the present address of the British were these who have baddened and fattened on poor humanity's thirst for strong drink. Since Samuel Johnson was executor of Thrill's estate, is unknown. We have this on the authority of a solid Englishman, who says, The virtues essential and peculiar to the exalted station of British word are the debar the unfortunate possessor from entering Paradise. There is not a Lord Chancellor, or Lord Mayor, or Lord of the Chamber, or Master of the Hounds, or Beefy or in Ordinary, or any sort of British Bigwig, out of the whole of British Dom, upon which the sun never sets. In Elysium, this is the only dignity beyond their reach the writer quoted is an honorable man, and I am sure he would not make this assertion if he did not have proof of the fact. So, for the present, I will allow him to go on his own recognizance, believing that he will adduce his documents at the proper time. But still, should not England have a fitting monument to Shakespeare? He is her one universal citizen. His name is honored in every school or college of earth where books are prized. There is no scholar in any clime who is not his daughter. He was born in England, he never was out of England, his ashes rest in England. But England's budget has never been ballasted with a single pound to help preserve and violate the memory of her one son to whom the world encovers. Victor Hugo has said something on this subject which runs about like this, why a monument to Shakespeare? He is his own monument and England is its pedestal. Shakespeare has no need of a pyramid, he has his work. What can bronze or marble do for him? Malachite and Alabaster are of no avail, Jasper, Serpentine, Basalt, Porphyry, Granite, Stones from pyros and Marble from Carrara They are all a waste of pains, genius can do without them. What is as indestructible as these, The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Julius Caesar, Coriolanus? What monument sublimer than, Lear? Sterner than, The Merchant of Venice? More dazzling than, Romeo and Juliet? More amazing than, Richard I.I.I. What moon could shed about the pile a light more mystic than that of, a midsummer night's dream? What capital, were it even in London, could rumble around it as tumultuously as Macbeth's perturbed soul? What framework of cedar or oak will last as long as, Othello? What bronze can equal the bronze of, Hamlet? No construction of lime, or rock, of iron and of cement is worth the deep breath of genius, which is the respiration of God through man. What edifice can equal thought? Babel is less lofty than Isaiah, Cheops is smaller than Homer, the Colosseum is inferior to Juvenal. the Geralda of Seville is dwarfish by the side of Cervantes, St. Peter's of Rome does not reach to the ankle of Dandy. What architect has the skill to build a tower so high as the name of Shakespeare? Add anything if you can to mind. Then why monument to Shakespeare? I answer, not for the glory of Shakespeare, but for the honor of England. Thomas A. Edison The mind cannot conceive what man will do in the 20th century with his chain lightning. Thomas A. Edison Some years ago, a law was passed out in Ohio, making any man ineligible to act as a magistrate who had not studied law and been duly admitted to the bar. Men who had not studied law were deemed lacking in the sense of justice. This law was designed purely for one man Samuel M. Jones of Toledo. Was ever a Jones so honored before? In Athens, of old. A law was once passed declaring that every man, either of whose parents was an alien, was not a citizen and therefore ineligible to hold office. This law was aimed at the head of one man Themistocles. And so you are an alien? was the turning remark flung at the mother of Themistocles. And the Greek matron proudly answered, Yes, I am an alien but my son is Themistocles. Down at Lilydale the other day, a woman told me that she had talked with the mother of Edison, and the spirit voice had said, it is true I was a Canadian school teacher, and this at a time when very few women taught, but I am the mother of him you call Thomas A. Edison. I studied and read and wrote and in degree I educated myself. I had great ambition I thirsted to know, to do, to become, but I was hampered and chained in an incongenial atmosphere. My body struggled with its bonds, so that I grew weak, worried, sick, and died, leaving my boy to struggle his way alone. My only regret at death was the thought that I was leaving my boy. I thought that through my marriage I had killed my career sacrificed myself. But my boy became heir to all my hunger for knowledge. And he has accomplished what I dimly dreamed. He has made plain what I only guessed. From my position here I have whispered secrets to him that only the freed spirits knew. I once thought my life was a failure. But now I know that the word failure is a term used only by foolish mortals in the universal sense there is no such thing as failure, just here it seems to me that someone once said that we get no mind without brain, but we had here the brain of the medium, otherwise this alleged message from the spirit realm would not be ours, so we will not now tarry to discuss psychic phenomena, but go on to other things, but the woman from Lily Dale said something, just the same, Edison was born at the little village of Milan, Ohio, which lies six miles from Norwalk on the road between Cleveland and Toledo. On the breaking out of the Civil War the boy was 14 years old. His parents had moved to Sarnia, Canada, and then across to Port Huron. Young Edison used to ride up and down from Detroit on the passenger boats and sell newspapers. His standing with the Detroit Free Press, backed up by his good cheer and readiness to help the passengers with their babies and bundles, gave him free passage on all railroads and steamboat lines. There was a public library at Detroit where anyone could read, but books could not be taken away. All Edison's spare time was spent at the library, which to him was a gold mine. All his mother's books had been sold, stolen or given away. And ahoy there, all you folks who have books. Do you not know what books are to a child hungry for truth, that has no books? Of course you do not. Books to a boy like young Edison are treasures trove in which is stored the learning of all great and good and wise who have ever lived, and the boy has to read, and read for a decade, in order to find that books are not much after all, when Edison saw the inside of that library and was told he could read any or all of the books, he said, if you please, mister, I'll begin here, and he tackled the first shelf, mentally deciding that he would go through the books ten feet at a time, A little later he bought at an auction 50 volumes of the North American Review, and moving the books up to his home at Port Huron proceeded to read them. The war was on papers sold for 10 cents each and business was good. Edison was making money and saving it. He only plunged on books. Over at Mount Clemens, at the Springs, folks congregated, and their young Edison took weekly trips selling papers. On one such visit he rescued the little son of the station agent from in front of a moving train. In gratitude, the man took the boy to his house and told him he must make it his home while in Mount Clemens, and then after supper the youngster went down to the station, and what was more, the station agent took him in behind the ticket window, where the telegraph instrument clicked off dots and dashes on a long strip of paper. Edison looked on with open mouth. Would you like to become a telegraph operator? asked the agent. Sure, was the reply. Already the boy had read up on the subject in his library of the North American Review. And he really knew the history of the thing better than did the agent. Edison was now a newsboy on the grand trunk. And he arranged his route so as to spend every other night at Mount Clemens. In a few months he could handle the key about as well as the station agent. About this time the ICE had carried out the telegraph line between Port Huron and Sarnia. The telegraph people were in sore straits. Edison happened along and said to the local operator, Come out here, Bill, on this switch engine and we'll fix things. My short snorts of the whistle for dots and long ones for dashes. They soon caught the ear of the operator on the other side. He answered back, What deal is the matter with you fellows? And Edison and the other operator roared with laughter, so that the engineer thought their think boxes needed rebabbiting, and that scheme of telegraphy with a steam whistle was Edison's first invention. Instead of going to college Edison started a newspaper a kind of amateur affair, in which he himself wrote editorials, news items and advertisements this when he was 17 years old, the best way to become a skilled writer is to write, and if there is a better way to learn than by doing, the world has not yet discovered it, also, if there is a finer advantage for a lie.